thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Friends, good morning. Good to see you. If you're new with us, my name is James Forsyth, and I invite you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll put this on the screen in in a moment. Uh, One of my jobs, uh, perhaps my key job as your pastor, is to preach the whole counsel of God. You heard that phrase, the whole counsel of God? It comes from Acts chapter 20, where Paul is saying a tearful farewell to the Ephesian elders, and he tells them that he is, he is uh, innocent of, of the blood um, of, of, from his hands uh, because he has not shrunk back from declaring to them the whole counsel of of God, trying to teach them everything that the Bible had to say. And uh, that's my call as your pastor. And that's a kind of daunting and complicated thing to get you. How do you teach someone everything the Bible has to say? I don't know. I don't know, but I at least have a plan, okay? I at least have a plan of attack on how I'm going to try and do that, which is that every year together we do an Old Testament series and a New Testament series and a topical series. So if you think about my first year here, we did a series in the Psalms, and then we did uh, a series uh, together um, uh, looking at uh, the book of Hebrews, and then we did a series on friendship. And now this year, we did a series on the life of Abraham, and a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we did a series together on what it means to be made in the image of God. And next week, as we try and continue teaching the whole counsel of God, we'll begin a summer series where we work our way through one of, one of Paul's letters. But before we get that to that, today we're going to do a one-off, one-off sermon on the topic of generosity on what it means to be generous. On this day, when we reflect upon all that some have given for us, as here in church, we reflect on what all Jesus has given for us, we are going to reflect for a few minutes on what the the Lord might call us to give, both in our time and our talents, come serve with us, but also with our finances and this topic of generosity. Now, I understand that for some of you, this, this is awkward. Like, you'd prefer we stuck to like things like the sanctity of life and the transgender community and racial diversity, right? <laughs> Let's stick to the nice, easy topics and, and not weigh into to things like this. Why do we talk about this? Well, we talk about this every year because, as Randy Alcorn has pointed out, some 15% of everything that Jesus has to say in the Gospels relates to the topic of money and possessions. Isn't that interesting? of what Jesus has to say in the Gospels relates to the topic of money and possessions. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because why? Not because Jesus is some sort of cheap TV preacher who's trying to manipulate money out of us. His entire life, he was never wealthy. Even his most harsh opponents and critics wouldn't have accused him of of trying to manipulate money out of people. So why did Jesus devote so much time to it? Well, Randy Alcorn suggests it's because Jesus knows that our faith and our finances 
are inseparable. That our faith and our finances are inseparable. That there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and our, our money. It's a discipleship issue. And because it's a discipleship issue, praise the Lord, I don't preach on this 15% of the time, right? <laughs> Can you imagine two months every year? <laughs> uh, but we do give one Sunday a year to focus explicitly on it. So last year we looked at why we should give from Matthew chapter 6, that great passage where Jesus tells us to store up treasures in heaven. And we thought about how generosity is, is logical. It makes sense to, to invest in those places that will yield an eternal return. We thought about how generosity is, is freeing. It frees us from the clutches of materialism. We thought about how generosity is formative. Jesus says, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, you want to care more about the poor of Knoxville? Start investing your money in the poor of Knoxville and your, your heart will grow in its affection for them. We also said generosity is necessary. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus, Jesus said. And so we thought together about some of the uh, external disciplines and the internal disciplines of the gospel that help us live generous, generous lives. Today, I want to turn to 2 Corinthians 8 to talk not about why we should give, but about how we should give. How should we, should we give? What is the, the disposition in our hearts from which our generosity should come? So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, turn there with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. Here Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's holding up the Macedonian churches as a great example of generosity. He is encouraging the Corinthians to give generously using the example of of the Macedonian churches. So let's start in verse one. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace." But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. 
Father, we do pray that you would uh, draw near to us now by your Spirit, and that disarming presence uh, of your Spirit would be with us as we reflect upon um, all that you have given to us in the gospel and how that grace should overwhelm into a life of generosity. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here at Cedar Springs, we believe that, that this church, and, and honestly, every healthy church, should take money seriously and be laid back about it. We should take money seriously, and we should be, in a sense, laid back about it. Take money seriously, in, in one sense, here, here are four words to, to explain what I mean. First of all, we believe when it comes to money that we should be very, as a church, we should be very focused. Focus to make sure that every cent that comes to our church is stewarded for the sake of the mission that God has given us. That the money that comes to our church should help more people live deeply. That if something doesn't help people respond to God's love by following Jesus and loving him and loving one another and serving the world, if something doesn't do that, then we don't spend money on that. We're focused on what it is the Lord has called us to do. Second word is the word wise. We take money seriously and we try to be, to be wise with it. So as a church, we carry no debt. We have five months of expenses ready in, in the bank. We have additional maintenance reserves for our facility. We also have reserves for our mission partners so that should something unexpected happen like, like COVID, we will continue to fully support our local partners and all of our global partners to the full extent promised, as we did through COVID and as we will continue to do in the future. Third word, focused wise, uh, transparent. Uh, here we have a, the, the way our budget is formed is through this kind of bottom up approach, which means that over 100 people uh, are involved in, in, our, in our budget process. Hundreds of eyes are set upon uh, our budget process as, as it is formed. The elders on our session, of course, approve the final budget, and we try and uh, make sure that there are updates given to the church as well. Lastly, the word accountable. Accountable. We believe it's important to steward God's money in a transparent way, but also with accountability. And so we have a variety of internal safeguards for how money is spent by staff or our other leaders, but we also have external safeguards as well. We do a, an annual audit that isn't a, a legal requirement for us as an organization, but an external audit every year that is done for the, for the health of our place. There's a sense in which we take money very seriously. And then, on the other hand, there's a sense in which we're laid back about it. Why? Because as a church, the issue isn't the money. Um, it's a discipleship issue. The issue isn't the money. It's what the money says about our hearts. And my concern this morning isn't really so much what you give, but it's the condition of your, your heart. And so please hear me say as we start this morning, my goal in this sermon um, isn't a guilt-induced spike in offerings next week. That's not what I'm aiming for. In fact, if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I would actually ask you not to give to our church until you have first received something from Jesus. If you're part of our church, maybe you're new to our church and you wouldn't describe yourself as, as a Christian, we would ask you not to give financially here because we're glad that you're here and not because we want your money. 
We're glad that you're here because we believe we have something for you. The greatest news the world has, has ever heard of salvation in Jesus that has become ours freely by his grace and now can become yours freely by his grace. We want for you to receive that before you ever think of giving to this church. If you are a Christian, if you are a member here, we celebrate the rich history of generosity we have here at Cedar Springs. And we talk about these things because we, we want to disciple our next generation to be the most generous generation yet. That's our, that's our heart. That's our goal. So let's consider four things together. How we should give. What's the disposition in our hearts uh, out of which we should, we should be generous? You ready? Number one, how should we give? We should give cheerfully. We should be a people who give cheerfully. I was struck reading the text this morning in verse 2, where we read that the Macedonian churches had a severe test of affliction and an abundance of joy and extreme poverty. So what happens next? If you add affliction, joy, and poverty, what, do you, what, what does that equal? Apparently, it overflows in a wealth of generosity. That doesn't make sense. He says, hey, things are really hard and you're really poor, but you have joy, so you're generous. (laughs) See what's happening here? We're to give cheerfully. Look at verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the gospel that explains how affliction and poverty equal generosity. Because we know the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was very rich, wealthy in in the majesty of heaven, and yet decided to leave those riches, exchange those riches for for poverty here on earth, to experience sin and misery and, and even death. Why? So that we, a people who are spiritually poor, caught in sin and brokenness ourselves, could exchange that poverty for the wealth of of heaven. This great exchange where the rich one becomes poor so that the poor ones can become rich. Now, if you have that gospel in your heart, if that's, if that's the Jesus by whom you've been saved, then even when you're afflicted and even when you're poor, there's something generous at your very core. Part of our identity as believers is, is to be generous because we've been saved through his generosity. And so verse seven of chapter nine, where do we get this idea of cheerful giving? Straight from the text, but from the next chapter. We read, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Because we give out of the gospel, the Lord's call to generosity is a call for us to be happy in him and then for us to allow that happiness to overflow in generosity. There's got to be a big difference between the way you give to the Lord and the way you pay your taxes, okay? (laughs) Now, you should pay your taxes. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I say but not a penny more, okay? (laughs) Uh, We all give to, we all pay our taxes, all good law-abiding citizens, but what do we do? We fill out all the paperwork to make sure that we don't pay any more than we have to pay. And that shouldn't be a reproach with generosity. (laughs) 
That shouldn't be the heart from which generosity comes. The, the gospel heart of generosity is this joyful heart. How connected are we to this reality? How aware are we of our own sin and brokenness and of the lavish grace that he has showered upon us? That you and I, we are ridiculous men and women who have been gifted all grace. All grace that, that we might live new, new lives for him and that we ourselves might be generous. What does your giving, I wonder, say about your heart? What does your giving say about your heart? Okay, we give cheerfully. Principle number two, let's get a little more practical. Paul says we should also give proportionally. Give cheerfully, then give proportionally. Look at verse 12. He says, For the, if the readiness is there, if, if the readiness to be generous is there, its generosity is acceptable according to what a person has. Not according to what he does not have. He then, he then continues, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that in the future, their abundance would be able to supply your needs. That there may be fairness, Paul says. So if you're ready to give, Paul says, give in accordance with what you have, not in accordance with what you don't have. In other words, generosity isn't a dollar number. It's not like you can figure out giving X dollars a year means, means you're generous. No, it's not a specific amount. Instead, generosity expresses itself proportionally. If you've been blessed with a lot, Paul says, give a lot. And if you've been blessed with a little, Paul says, give a little. We all give a portion of what we have. Now, of course we recognize, of course we recognize that everything we have belongs to him. It's not like we say, okay, we give a little portion to the Lord and then the rest is mine. No, of course we recognize that it all belongs to him. But we give him a, a portion of, of what we have to, to prove that we actually believe that. Does that make sense? Uh, one preacher uses the illustration. He says, imagine a son complains to his father that he doesn't get enough time with him. The son says to the father, we, we, you, don't, you don't give me your time. And the father responds very defensively by saying, hey, how can you say that? I live my entire life for, for this family. I get up early and I go to work and I work all day that this, this family, you know, for, for, for you. But doesn't the father's claim ring hollow if he doesn't also give his son a special portion of his time? If he doesn't also take time to play catch and take his son for ice cream and do whatever it is that the son might in, enjoy, the claim that his whole life has lived for his son starts, starts to ring a little hollow. But if he does those things, it's then easy for the son to believe. Yes, you give me this special time, and that makes it easy for me to believe that the rest of your time is in fact lived out for, for, our, for our family. Well, so it is the same with money. We give the Lord a proportion of our money, not because we think the rest belongs to us, but to prove that we believe it all belongs to him. That's why we give a portion of our money. Now, two quick sides to this when it comes to application. First of all, uh, this idea of proportional giving um, is a challenge to the American church. Why? Because in the history of the world, there's never been a group of Christians as rich as us. 
Never been a group of Christians as rich as us. And globally in the world today, there isn't a group of Christians as rich as us. Through time and space, we are the richest Christians who have ever lived. Uh, nearly all of us are, in sort of Christian terms, the 1%. And so as those who have been blessed with much, we should be, be giving much. We should be giving generously. Now, as it's a challenge, I hope this is also an encouragement. This is also an encouragement. Why? Because we don't underestimate the real poverty in our country, and we don't underestimate the financial hardship in our congregation either. And so this call to give proportionally is actually very freeing. Because if you are unemployed or underemployed or low income or a single parent or got some health issues or, or whatever else may, may be going on in your life, you should feel no shame. You should feel no guilt. Because the call isn't to reach a certain dollar number, it's to give proportionately about what, what you do have. And so remember, who is the most generous person in the Bible? You know, Bible trivia. Who's the most generous person in, in the Bible? It's the poor widow who put in a penny. Two coins, Jesus says, that totaled a penny. She's the most generous person in the Bible. And do you remember how Jesus commends her? Remember what he said? He said, I tell you the truth that she has put in more than all the rest. And you say, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. She, she hadn't put in more than all the rest. And I chuckle to myself and I think, remember who you're dealing with. Because you're dealing with the Jesus who like takes a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and boom, feeds thousands of people. And he, and he can do whatever he wants with the penny that she gave. <laughs> he can multiply the penny that you give to feed thousands. So that there's a profound sense in which you'll have given more than all the rest. <laughs> the challenge, but also the encouragement that comes with giving proportionately. Here's the thing. Apply it to ourselves. How much should we give in light of how much we have? All right. Number three, give cheerfully, give proportionally. Let's lean in a little more. As Paul tells us, we should give sacrificially. Takes this idea of proportional giving, and then Paul presses it in a little more to make sure that it's not just proportional, but it's also sacrificial. Look at verse three, where he says, for they gave the Macedonian churches according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. He lifts up the Macedonian churches. This includes the church at Philippi, where we get another New Testament letter, letter to. Um, also Philippians, what's the theme of Philippians? It's all about joy. It's all about joy in the Lord. And, and isn't it interesting that the New Testament letter of joy is written to a church that we know is so generous? Joy overflowed in that place and generosity was part of the reason, part of the reason why. And these Macedonian churches are commended for giving beyond their means. Showing us an example, Paul says, that, that the Corinthian church, and I'm sure our church is to follow. Not to kind of check the box as we approach generosity, but to really consider if we're giving sacrificially. Great example of this from church history comes from John Wesley. He was one of the, the great evangelists of the, the 18th century. And in 1731, John Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he'd have more money to give away. So that year, he earned 30 pounds. 
and he realized that he could live on 28, and so he gave two pounds away. Well, the next year, his income doubled and he earned 60 pounds, but he still was able to live on 28, and so he gave 32 pounds away. The year after his income reached 90 pounds, he was still able to live on 28, and so he gave 62 pounds away. By the end of his life, his income reached about 1,400 pounds a year, but he rarely let his expenses rise. And so in 1776, something funny happened because the tax authorities started to get suspicious of him. And they said, someone, a man of this income, a man of this wealth must have possessions that he's keeping hidden from us so that he doesn't have to pay excise tax on them. And so they, they did this investigation into him. Surely this man has more than he's letting on. Well, he replies, I have two silver spoons at London and two at Bristol. This is all the plate I have at present and I shall not buy any more while so many around me lack bread. Not good. <laughs> what a way to write to the IRS, <laughs> you know? <laughs> In 1791, Wesley died at the age of 87. The only money mentioned in his will were some coins that were in a jacket pocket and a couple of coins that sat on his dresser. Most of the 30,000 pounds that he'd amassed in his life, which at that time was significant wealth, had been, had been given away. Before his death, he wrote, I cannot help, <laughs> this is like, a pastor's sort of occupational hazard. He says, I cannot help leaving my books behind me whenever God calls me home. But in every other respect, my hands will be my executors. Who will determine how my wealth is given away? My, my own hands will be my executors. Now listen, I'm not saying that all of us should do exactly as John Wesley did. Although I'm also not saying we shouldn't. <laughs> I'm also not saying that there's anything wrong with having possessions or wealth. We see that in the Bible. Together we did a series on the life of Abraham, who was, who was an incredibly rich man. And even in his sin, when he landed up in places like Egypt, the Lord sent him away with more than he had when he first began. Like his, his wealth amassed throughout his, his life. And so it's, it's entirely appropriate for the, the Lord gives us resources that we might steward them. What I am saying is that we should give sacrificially. Let me put it more simply than that. Our heart for generosity should mean that we live simpler lives than if we weren't Christians. Can I say that again? Your life, my life, should be simpler than it would be if you and I weren't Christians. Now, what that looks like might be different for each of us, but for all of us, it should mean that there are things we want to do and could have done, but can no longer do because we've given that money away. Make sense? Things that you want, you know, that, that you want to do and that you could do, but, but you're unable to do them because you've given that money away. Test yourself on this. Is your life simpler than it would be if you weren't a Christian? Is my life simpler than it would be if I wasn't a Christian? All of us should be generous to the point that it impacts us. That's what it means to give sacrificially. Okay, fourth, final, we give cheerfully, proportionally, sacrificially. And then lastly, Paul says, give diligently. Diligently. 
Let's get this done, he says in verse 10. A year ago, you started not only to do this work of of generosity, but also to desire to do it. So you started to be generous and you wanted to be more generous. So now he says, finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. See how Paul is, is pastoring the Corinthians and he's saying, look, you've started to give and that's good. And you've started to desire that you might be yet more generous still. And that's also good. But now take action, take some steps. So this desire actually comes to fruition that you actually might finish this good desire that you might have, that this good desire might, might find a kind of completion. In other words, take some steps and actually get this done. Be diligent. So I had Tori McMurray, our executive administrator, pull up some stats, some stats in our church. <laughs> Inside Tori's beautiful mind. Here we go. So last year, 1,673 households gave to our church. So a little over 1,600 households gave to our church. A beautiful history and legacy of generosity. And and the Lord's still at work doing beautiful things today. Of these, about 812, I say about, exactly 812, Uh, 812 of these households gave less than $2,000 over the course of the year. What does that mean? It means roughly 50% of the members who give to our church gave less than $2,000 a year. Now, on one hand, do you know what? That stat is, is actually better than the averages. But I think it still shows us that there's some room to go. That there's some room for us to, to grow. That some of us have really wrestled with this idea of generosity and some of us are still, still growing in this place. Now, let's be careful to put this statistic in the context of this sermon. Because if that dollar amount for you represents cheerful, proportional, sacrificial, diligent giving, then you should feel no guilt. And the Lord is going to multiply that for his glory. And... If you're giving that amount, and for you, it doesn't represent cheerful, proportional, sacrificial, diligent giving, um, you should still feel no shame because that's not how the gospel works. Remember, the goal isn't a guilt-induced spike in offerings. That's not, we're, not, we're not aiming at short-term, superficial behavior change. That's not what we're about as a church. We want Jesus to get our hold of our lives in a way that we start to be, that we start to be different. That, that we start to be different. And the point I'm trying to make just now and the point with these statistics is that many of us are not as generous as we ought to be or even as generous as we'd like to be, not because we're horrible, self- selfish people, but because we've lacked diligence. <laughs> we've lacked a purposeful, intentional plan so that the desire that we had to give and even the desire that we might have to give as we sit here just now actually finds fruition in us following through and being generous. Because here's how money works. I don't know why it works this way. I just know that it does. No matter how much money you earn, uh, spending always expands to meet or exceed your income. 
I don't know why it works this way. I just, I just know that, that, that it does. That You can't just live your life and hope that you'll have enough left over at the end to be generous. It just doesn't work that way. Life doesn't, doesn't work that way. Money doesn't work that way. If we are to be generous, we need to be proactive. We need to be diligent to make sure that we flourish in this grace of giving. So, five questions to help us be diligent as we close. First question, are you happy with your giving to God? Are you happy with what you give to the work of the Lord? You know, celebrate with me. I don't know what anybody in our church gives. Praise the Lord. Why? Because my pastoral desire is for your heart. <laughs> so I don't know. Is this a matter between you, between you and the Lord? Pray, pray about that. Are you happy with where you are? Second, have you budgeted your giving? Do, do you have a, a diligent plan? I know for our family, it's the first line item on our, on our monthly budget. We do that first. We figure out the rest from there. Do you, do you have a, a plan for, for your budget? Third, do you have a plan on, on how you're actually going to give? Are you ca- cash, check, automatic, online? Do you give weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually? What's the plan? I don't think it, I don't think it matters what the plan is. I think it just matters that there's a plan. That you know how and how and and when. Four, have you thought about your future giving goals? Let me press this one in, especially if, if the Lord has uh, brought you along in this in this grace of giving. What might this next season look like for you? Are there particular issues or causes that you would love to be generous towards? Are there ways that you could give one percent more next year than you gave the previous year? What are your future giving goals? Lastly. This is a hard one, but this is a powerful one. Is there anyone you could ask to keep you lovingly accountable? Who in your life might keep you lovingly accountable over what you give? Um, who in your life that you're not married to might keep you lovingly accountable? Um, this was one of the most life-changing things for me. I, I have a really, really good friend, close friend, trusted friend, uh, confidential friend. And each year we sit down and we show each other what, what we've given. We don't tell each other, we show each other. And this is one way that where our taxes help us. There's a, there's a bottom line. And we open up about our other financial matters as, as well. Why? To encourage each other and hold each other lovingly accountable. Um, I don't have a good track record. And you don't have a good track record of following Jesus in the dark. We all do better when we live this life in in community. So who might hold you lovingly accountable? Pray through these questions. Think on these questions. Talk about these questions with your household, with with your spouse. Use these questions to help disciple your kids, that we might be a people who give cheerfully, proportionally, sacrificially, diligently. One more story and I'm done. Okay. Um, A story that I hope captures the spirit we want to have here at our church. Um, when I was a wee boy, my dad owned a, like a chain of convenience stores. And uh, on certain mornings, uh, he'd, he'd take me to work with him. And I always loved these mornings. We'd get up really early. I don't know how early it was, but it was dark outside. And as a seven-year-old, that meant it was really early. And uh, we'd eat breakfast together, and then we'd get dressed to go to work. And then we'd leave our apartment and we'd walk through those early morning streets where you only see the occasional car and the street lights are are still on. And we'd walk to the store that was was nearest 
nearest our house. And then when we got there, I'd follow my dad around and I'd ask him a thousand questions and I'd generally get get in the way. But my favorite part was when the stock arrived because a truck would, would pull up uh, and at street level, we'd unload this truck and we'd put boxes of Coke and chips and various other things on a chute at street level that slid down to, to the basement of the store where the stock would be kept for, for that coming week. And, you know, as the boxes went up and down, I loved nothing more than to go up and down that chute myself. <laughs> Again, not being all that helpful, generally getting in the way. And then I'd go home delighted because I went to work with dad. (laughs) And I want you to know the biblical call to generosity is God's invitation to go to work with dad. This church, God himself, God, God himself doesn't need our money. Do you think he's up there frantically pounding out Excel spreadsheets to figure out if we're going to make it this year, right? (laughs) He doesn't need our money. And and in a really kind of mysterious way, could actually accomplish his purposes quicker if he did it himself. (laughs) And yet we have a God who likes to take us to work, who likes us to follow him around and ask our questions, who likes us to go up and down the slide, who likes us to enjoy the ride. And so the call is, friends, I've experienced in in a modest way myself, and I promise you it's true. Your life will be richer if you're generous. I'm not talking about some stupid health and wealth promise. I'm talking about something so much better than that. (laughs) I'm talking about the rich life of life with dad, of life with our father. So give cheerfully, proportionally, sacrificially, diligently. Father, we do thank you that you invite us to come and participate in the work that you are doing in your world. And Lord, we, we thank you for the very clear instruction that your word gives us. It's so, so practical to, to give cheerfully and to give proportionally and, 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 and sacrificially and, and diligently. And Lord, I pray for my heart and I pray for our hearts that you would be doing the work of grace in us to, to make us that yet more generous church. Um, We believe our lives will be richer if we receive this invitation. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, um, who exchanged wealth for poverty, that we might exchange poverty for wealth. In his happy name, amen.